0: Grace and peace to you, my brothers and sisters. I count it a privilege to be with you here again, and also to be able to share the Word of God with you again. Today I want to explore with you a vital truth which is increasingly under attack in our world today, and especially here in the Philippines. The title of my message is The Default Destination. The truth that I have in mind is a truth from which our sinful minds recoil. It's a truth that should strike terror into the heart of anyone who has the courage to face it honestly. This truth distinguishes biblical Christianity from every other religion and every other philosophy of life. It's implied in the very name of your church, Grace Christian Church. Without this truth, that wonderful word Grace has no meaning. The truth that I want to explore with you today is the fact that every human being ever born, with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ, is unworthy of heaven. That's a nice way of saying it. Let me say it less nicely. Every human being ever born, with the exception of Jesus, deserves eternal condemnation. But that's still a rather sterile theological way of saying it, so let me say it more bluntly yet. Every human being ever born except Jesus, and that includes you and me, deserves to burn in hell. God's Word declares this truth again and again. According to Scripture, the default destination of every human being is hell. Controversy over this issue has recently caused a commotion here in the Philippines. During an interview a well-known television host was asked this question. Do you believe that God will send unbelievers to hell? Her answer was a forthright and courageous yes. When the interviewer challenged her she stood her ground. She refused to back down She quoted scripture wisely to support her answer. That interview set off a firestorm of outrage. A writer in the online edition of Esquire magazine called her comments backward, backhanded, and inflammatory. He wrote that Christians are out of touch with what he called, quote, the diversity of perspective and the relativism that have a right to exist in the real world. Yet the words of this writer reek of hypocrisy. If, as he claims, diversity of perspective has a right to exist in the real world, what right does he have to push back so viciously on the views of Christians? Now, perhaps you've felt some of the heat of that firestorm. Pressure from the world as it pushes back against the reality of hell can tempt us to soften or to minimize certain aspects of the gospel message. But if we yield to that pressure, we do so at our own peril, as well as the peril of others. Peril for us who share the gospel, because if we tell an incomplete gospel message, we will surely displease our Lord and Savior. Peril for those who hear us, because an incomplete gospel is a false gospel, that cannot and will not save anyone. Today I want to explore the reality of hell with you by addressing three questions. Question number one, why do people deny the reality of hell? Question number two, how do people convince themselves that they will not go to hell or that hell is not something to be feared? Question number three, Why is hell the default destination? Let's begin with question number one. Why do people deny the reality of hell? This question is easy to answer. People deny the reality of hell because the only alternative, that is, admitting that hell is real, is unacceptable to them. If people admit to themselves that hell is real, they must face the fact of their own sinfulness. If people admit to themselves that hell is real, they must face the possibility that God will send them there. And if people admit to themselves that hell is real, they must also face the likelihood that people whom they love, who have died, are in hell today. These reasons and more motivate people to deny the reality of hell. That brings us to question number two. How do people convince themselves that they will not go to hell or that hell is not something to be feared? Let me identify for you six strategies that people use to convince themselves that they will not go to hell or that they need not fear hell. We will will see that every one of these strategies is based on a lie and therefore every one of these strategies fails. Strategy one is simply to deny the existence of hell. This strategy is based on the worldview of scientific materialism, which insists that the only realities that exist are physical realities. This strategy fails because we all know that there is more to life than just matter and energy. People may try to ignore the fact that the human spirit is real and immortal, but we all know in our heart of hearts that something lies beyond death for each one of us. As Solomon said long ago, God has put eternity in our hearts. Strategy number two is a false doctrine known as annihilationism. Annihilationists admit that hell is real, but they try to use the Bible to argue that those who go to hell will only suffer for a finite period of time. After that they will cease to exist. As attractive as this idea sounds, it is simply untrue. In his final words regarding the fates of the unsaved and the saved in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus made this concluding summary. He said, and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous unto eternal life. If God's gift of eternal life is eternal and never-ending for the saved, so is the punishment of hell for the unsaved. Strategy number three is universalism. Universalism is the idea that everyone will be saved and no one will go to hell. Universalism is clearly false. Jesus eliminated the possibility of universalism with these words from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The words of Jesus make it clear that many people are already in hell today and many go there every day. Strategy number four is inclusivism. Inclusivism is the idea that salvation is not exclusively for Christians. Inclusivists claim that all religions lead to God and everyone who follows his beliefs sincerely will be accepted by God. Inclusivism is a lie. Jesus said in John 14:6, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." The true gospel of eternal salvation is exclusive. It is the only way to be saved. Well, strategy number five doesn't have a name. I call it the only monsters strategy. People who use this strategy approve of the existence of hell, but in their thinking, only monsters deserve to go to hell. Here they have in mind people like Hitler and Stalin, or serial killers, or rapists, or pedophiles. This strategy fails because any unforgiven sin is enough to condemn a person in the eyes of the Holy God. Think of the Pharisees who hounded Jesus. They did their best to obey the Ten Commandments as they understood them. In many ways, they were exemplary citizens. Yet in John 8:24, Jesus said to them, If you do not believe that I am He, that is, the Messiah, and the divine Son of God, you will die in your sins. Hell is not merely for the worst of people. It is not only for human monsters. All people, no matter how good, deserve hell because all people, no matter how good, are sinful. Strategy number six is the God is love strategy. People who use this strategy tell themselves that a loving God would never send anyone to an eternal hell. But they deceive themselves because they forget that God is not only loving. God is also righteous, holy, and just. The prophet Habakkuk said of God, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. God may tolerate human sin during our mortal lives on earth, but he will never allow sinful human beings to come into his presence in heaven. In summary, people employ many different strategies to convince themselves that they will not go to hell or that hell is not something to be feared. Yet every one of these strategies fails because every one of them is based on a lie or a contradiction of Scripture. Our Lord Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. If we were to do an extensive study of his teaching about hell, we would discover the following truths. Truth number one, hell is real. Truth number two, The suffering of the unsaved that begins in hell will continue in the lake of fire and it will never end. Hell is eternal and those who go there will never escape. Truth number three, hell is the default destination of all people. But rather than doing a study of what scripture teaches about hell, I want to focus the remainder of our time on that last truth. Why is hell the default destination? Why do all people deserve to go to hell? If you are a Bible-believing Christian, you should understand the basic reason why hell is the default destination. Let's trace those reasons briefly as we review the Gospel message. A sound presentation of the gospel will always start with the bad news. All people are sinners. Romans 3.23 makes this clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some sin more, some sin less, but we all sin. There's more to the bad news. We cannot remove our guilt by good deeds or by obedience to the law. Romans 3.20 destroys any such hope. Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Good deeds and obedience to God's laws cannot remove the guilt that our sin brings. Law can only condemn It cannot justify us or save us. And the bad news doesn't stop there either. The penalty of unforgiven sin is death. The first part of Romans 6.23 declares this clearly. The wages of sin is death. The death of which Paul speaks here is not merely physical death. He's referring to eternal death eternal separation from God in hell the bad news that we've seen here is very very bad but then we come to the good news listen to the second part of romans 6:23 the gift of god is eternal life in jesus christ our lord romans chapter 8 verse 1 declares the same good news there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we have the wonderful promise of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To perish is to go to hell. The only way to avoid the default destination of hell is to believe the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead to prove that his sacrifice on our behalf was accepted by the Father. This is salvation by grace. It is a gift of God that cannot be earned. This is salvation by faith. It comes when we choose to rely upon Christ and nothing else for our salvation. This is the only true gospel and the only way to avoid the default destination. If you accept the Bible as true and the inerrant word of God as true as I do, you will have no difficulty accepting the following two facts. Fact number one, those who hear the gospel and believe it will be saved from the eternal penalty of hell. Fact number two, those who hear the gospel but reject it will be sent by God to hell. But not everyone fits neatly into those two categories. We are left with a difficult question. What about people who never have a chance to hear the good news? would God send such people to hell? This question is one of the reasons why so many people refuse to accept the idea that unbelievers will be sent to hell. And so here we return to question number three of today's message. Why is hell the default destination? To answer this question I want to turn to Romans chapter 2. And as we do so let's remind ourselves that in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes several points. First, he argues that all people know that there is an eternal and powerful creator. They know this from the evidence of the world around us. All people know this truth, yet most people, Paul says, suppress this truth. Second, Paul argues that when people suppress the truth that God exists, God gives them over to sin. Their refusal to face the existence of the Creator to whom they owe their existence and their obedience leads to the explosion of sin that's evident in the world in which we live. As we move on to Romans chapter 2, Paul addresses two groups of people. First, he speaks to the Jews as examples of people who know about God because they have access to the written scriptures. He then turns his attention to those who have no access to the scriptures. Let's examine what Paul has to say about each of these groups. Paul addresses the Jews first in verses 1 to 3. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another... You condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul's point here is clear. Those who have the scriptures have no excuse They cannot deny their own guilt before God. But now Paul raises the issue of those who do not have access to the Scriptures. What he says about them would also apply to people who never have a chance to hear the true gospel. What Paul says seems at first to suggest that those who never hear the gospel have a chance to avoid the default destination of hell. But we will see that when Paul's discussion is finished, that that possibility will be removed. Listen now as I read verses 4 to 11. And as I do so, keep in mind that Paul is still addressing the Jews who have the Scriptures. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God." When you first read these verses, it sounds like Paul is saying that there is a possibility that some people will be saved because of their good deeds. In verse 6, Paul says that God will render to each one according to his deeds. He then lays out two options. Eternal life, on the one hand, and indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, on the other. The latter is an apt description of hell. According to Paul, these two eternal options apply to both Jews and Gentiles, depending upon their behavior. Now here we have a real problem. Paul seems to be saying that eternal life can be earned. Notice how he describes those who will receive eternal life. They are people who, according to verse 6, by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. According to verse 10, these same people, quote, work what is good. If we were to stop reading Paul's words at verse 11, we might leave with the impression that eternal life can be earned and that salvation by good works is possible. In fact, I have heard preachers use this text to say something like this. People who have never had a chance to hear the gospel will be judged by their works. If they live good lives, if they live according to the light that they have, God will accept them into heaven. More than once, I have heard a preacher use an argument like this to comfort people who live in places to which the gospel has only come recently. Those preachers were trying to offer comfort to their listeners who are concerned that their ancestors might have gone to hell because they never had a chance to hear the gospel. But is that really what Paul is saying? Let's keep reading. First, listen to verse 12. Paul says, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Notice how Paul brings us back to the two categories. People who have the law. In other words, those who have access to the scriptures and the gospel. And people who do not. Notice that in both cases, sin will result in eternal judgment. Now listen as I read verses 12 through 16 together. For as many as have sinned without law will perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things contained in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves." who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now the picture becomes clearer. Let's see what Paul reveals about the status of people who do not have access to the scriptures and who never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse 14. People who do not have the law sometimes do, quote, by nature the things in the law. Here Paul is talking about doing what is right. Think of the do not commandments. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet. People who have never had access to the written word of God or the gospel often obey these commands. Why? Because these commands are programmed into our human nature. All human beings have an instinctive understanding or sense of right and wrong. It's written in the human heart, and most people, at least some of the time, obey the law of their hearts. Next, Paul brings up the conscience. The conscience is the part of you that judges your behavior. Notice what Paul says about the conscience in verse 16. Listen carefully. Their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. We all have an innate sense of right and wrong, and we all have a conscience. When we do right, our conscience gives its approval. When we do wrong, our conscience condemns us. It tells us that we are guilty, and that is the problem. Someone might say Romans 2 6 to 11 shows that God will accept unbelievers who live according to the light that they have. Well, that argument fails because there is no such person. No one always does what he believes is right. Everyone sometimes does what he believes is wrong. And it doesn't really matter whether a person's sense of right and wrong is fully correct or biblical, because everyone sometimes does what he believes is wrong. If you intentionally break what you believe to be the law, you are guilty even if what you think is wrong is not actually wrong." So here's the bottom line regarding what Paul says about people who have no access to the scriptures and who never hear the gospel. Such people don't have God's law, but they do have a law written in their hearts. The fact that they often do what is right proves that they have such a law. The fact that they sometimes do what they believe is wrong proves that they are sinful and guilty. There's a general principle here that applies to all people whether or not they have access to the Scriptures and whether or not they have ever had a chance to hear the Gospel. Listen again to verse 12. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. We all have a law of some sort and we all disobey the law that we have. That makes us all guilty and therefore we are all worthy of God's condemnation. We cannot escape this conclusion. The default destination of all people is eternal hell. What then is the correct answer to the question, will God send unbelievers to hell? The correct answer is yes. Both those who hear the gospel and reject it and those who never hear the gospel will be sent to hell by God. In doing so, God will be just. That is the clear biblical truth. This truth may be unpopular. It may infuriate postmodernists who demand tolerance and who exalt relativism. It may sound like foolishness to materialists who deny the reality of hell. The fact that all unbelievers will go to an eternal hell may be rejected by annihilationists, universalists, and inclusivists. People who hold to the God is love defense and those who believe that only human monsters will be sent to hell may succeed in convincing themselves that they have nothing to fear after death. For us who believe the Bible, knowing that unbelievers go to hell requires us to face the likelihood that people whom we love are now in hell. Whether people accept or deny the truth of the default destination cannot change the facts. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. As I close this message I want to raise one final question. Instead of asking, will God send unbelievers to hell, I suggest that we ask a different question. Why would a holy, righteous, and just God allow anyone into heaven? Until you ask and answer this question, you will never truly understand grace. Let's remind ourselves of what we were created to be and then of what we are. God created Adam and Eve to bear his image. It was God's intent that they and us, their descendants, would make visible God's invisible personal attributes. Just as a human son should reflect the personal qualities of his father, we humans should reflect the personal qualities of God our Creator. But when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, they lost their ability to accurately reflect God's image. As a result of the fall, we humans who are their descendants tell lies about God through our behavior. That's what sin is. Look at what we have become as a race. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we pervert what is good. We worship idols. We oppress the weak. We hate and we kill. Instead of bringing honor to God through our behavior, we instead bring him shame. Saying that we were born this way will not get us off the hook. We are not merely helpless victims of sin. We are also perpetrators. Jesus proclaims the sad truth about us in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. Listen as I read. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed." Yes, it is true that God is a God of love. But it is also true that God is holy, righteous, and just. On the one hand, God's justice requires a payment for our sins. On the other hand, His love provided the payment for our sins. If God were not a God of justice, there would be no need for eternal salvation. If God were not a God of love, there would be no possibility of eternal salvation. There is no good news without the bad news. If there is no hell for unbelievers, neither is there any heaven for believers. We cannot have it both ways. We who know Christ need not be afraid when unbelievers reject the doctrine of hell. Their voices may be loud, but their objections have no basis in fact. God's grace cannot exist without God's justice. God's mercy for sinners has no meaning unless there is also a penalty for sin. We must proclaim both the bad news of hell as well as the good news of heaven. It is our job to tell the truth and it is the job of God's Holy Spirit to open the eyes of unbelievers so that they can believe the truth. Don't be afraid. Don't back down. Tell the truth. Despise the shame. Do your part and trust God to do His. Will you pray with me? Father, it is difficult for us to face the truth of our depravity as a race. It's painful for us to face the fact that people whom we love are undoubtedly in hell now because they died without receiving your gift of eternal salvation. Father, we live in a world that rejects your word and especially rejects the truth of the default destination, the fact that the broad road leads to destruction and only the narrow road of faith in Jesus Christ leads to eternal life. Father, give us the courage to tell the whole gospel, both the bad news and the good news, because if we don't tell the bad news, we won't be telling a full gospel. Father, give us courage, give us wisdom to pray that when we share the gospel, your Holy Spirit will do the part that only he can do, which is to open the eyes of unbelievers to the truth, that they may see their own sinfulness, that they may see that Christ is the only way of salvation, and that they may take the gift that you offer to them because Christ died for them, was buried, and rose from the dead. Father, this is our prayer. Give us opportunities to share the whole good news and do your wonderful saving work. We pray this through Christ and for his glory. Amen.